Do you have a favorite joke? Three men walked into a bar, fourth one ducked. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lowell and Julie. Sharing stories, empowering mindsets. Today's guest is Michael Frogley, widely known as Frog. He's a revered wheelchair basketball player and coach. After becoming paralyzed from the chest down in a car accident in 1986, he was introduced to wheelchair basketball while at a rehab center in Ottawa. He made Team Canada in 1989 and competed with the Canadian men's wheelchair basketball team at the 1992 Paralympic Games in Barcelona, Spain, where Canada placed fourth. He then served as the head coach of the men's national team from 1996 to 2004. He guided Team Canada to Paralympic supremacy for the first time in program history with gold medals in 2000 and 2004, as well as a Paralympic silver medal in 2008. Frog also served as an assistant coach in 2006 as the Canadian men won their first world championship title. He coached men's and women's collegiate wheelchair basketball at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater and the University of Illinois, leading his teams to a combined 12 national championship titles. Frog served as inspiration to a participant in the third season of the documentary series Mindset Go. He is hardworking and committed to empowering others to achieve their best on and off the court. Frog has received many awards during his illustrious career. Some of these include being inducted into the Canadian Wheelchair Basketball Hall of Fame, receiving the Harold Sharper Achievement Award for Outstanding Service Towards Individuals with Disabilities, and receiving the Bill Stewart Memorial Award for Outstanding Leadership While Working with Individuals with Disabilities. Frog has a Master of Science in Education from the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, and he currently lives near Toronto with his wife, Mo, and three kids. As we are learning with Zoom, we are not in complete control of audio, so there are a few wonky sound issues that you'll have to do your best to ignore. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, hello. Hey. How are you? Having a good Friday afternoon? Yeah, getting a little bit of a breather at the end of the week and catch your breath over the weekend and then start again on Monday. Yeah, back to the grind. Do you live in Toronto now? Yeah, I live in Whitby, just outside of Toronto. I grew up in Ottawa and then I moved to the States a number of years ago and I spent most of the last 25 years, 30 years in the United States and then just moved back about eight years ago to, to come back to Canada. Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks. It actually, it's hard to believe that it's been eight years that I've been back, actually, to tell you the truth. But like they say, time flies. Oh, yeah. And especially this last year and a bit has been, I don't know what happened to that time. <laughs> well, pandemic, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's it's, it's a whole different experience that we've lived through. And one day we'll all be like old, grizzled grandparents explaining mm. stuff to our grandkids <laughs> and stuff yeah. like this. And they'll be like, What? That sounds great. Kids didn't have to go to school. I I wonder if at that time people will have forgotten how hygienic we all became. It's actually kind of nice how our kids are so good at washing their hands and sanitizing at school all the time and we're not spitting on birthday cakes anymore. (laughs) Like, will we keep this? Oh. Well, usually a couple of times during the winter, I'll get a cold. Yeah. And because of all the social distancing and sanitizing, I haven't got a cold. Our kids haven't got a cold touch wood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How old are your kids? 15, 14, and 13. Oh, you're mm. right in the thick of teenagers. How's that? Teenagerhood. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's neat because you can have some really neat conversations yeah. with your kids as they're starting to think about some more global ideas and abstract ideas. Yeah. And then sometimes <laughs> they believe they're right. <laughs> oh, just sometimes. <laughs> and, that, and that you don't know anything. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> well, we are really honored to meet you. We have some connections. You've had this connection with the Canadian Paralympic Committee and being in Parasport. And you were also on Mindset Go. And when we were able to watch you on there, this is, wow, this is quite an amazing person. You've lived the life of the athlete and you also live the life of coach. And we're really excited Thanks. to hear mm -hmm. your feedback, what you've learned in your years as an athlete, but also what you've learned as a coach and how we could kind of transfer some of this knowledge from you and, and share it around. So personally, we're a bit selfish. We want to hear that information <laughs> for ourselves, but also to help share what you've learned can help others through their obstacles. Always love yeah. to share all the experiences I've learned. We do a quote before practice every day. One of the quotes was the essence of it was wisdom comes from a life lived filled with mistakes. And so I'm happy to share all the mistakes I've made mm -hmm. and maybe describe that as wisdom. <laughs> oh, yes, please so. do. We often describe opportunities as coming from obstacles. Yeah, yeah. So fire away. Well, to start, can we hear your story? Starting with, okay, you were born in Ottawa. <laughs> and then <laughs> We're going way back. And then let's jump to 1986. I was four years old at that time, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I was born in PEI. I, oh. I was born in Summerside. My dad, uh, as a military brat, my dad was stationed in Summerside. I was only there for a year. Okay, but still before counts. Before I moved to Ottawa. Did you meet Anne of Green Gables? I did not, no. <laughs> I was just a tiny little guy back then. <laughs> and then we moved to Ottawa, and we lived there for a few years. And I moved down to Washington, D.C. for a few years. My dad was stationed down there. Then we moved back to Ottawa. And I spent a few years there before moving down to the States after my accident. Oh, okay. In June of 1986, I was out one night with my friends. And we were actually just across the river from Ottawa. We were in Hull. And we we're kind of bored. There wasn't much going on. It was a weeknight. I was in the military reserve full time at the time. And we had a couple of days off. So we decided that night, rather than just stay in, in Ottawa, we would drive up to my family cottage in north central Quebec. It was about an hour north of Ottawa and hopped in my car and we started racing up there. Just a little bit before we got to the cottage, just literally around the last bend before we just hit straight away and then we, we get to my cottage. I lost control of the car. I was going way too fast and put it into the ditch and rolled it and got thrown from the car and the car rolled over top of me and, and I ended up breaking my back and being paralyzed from the chest down. You were how old at this time? I was 19. Okay. All of a sudden, my life turned upside down. Mm. Just a week before my accident, I'd gone out to Halifax and I'd been at the Naval Officer Selection Board. So I'd, I'd wanted to go into the Canadian Navy as an officer. So I'd applied for their officer training program. And I was waiting to hear the status of, of that selection process. When I had my accident and I was actually in the hospital and two weeks after I had my accident, I got a phone call from the Department of Defense saying that I'd been selected for Naval Officer Canada training and would I accept the position? And I had to tell them, no, I, I couldn't because, oh, wow. well, they're just, it's not an accessible job to put yeah. it, to put it mildly. So all of a sudden I had to think of something else to do. What, where am I going to go with my life? That phone call must have been a little bit bittersweet. I mean, affirming that you were accepted in the first place, but also, ugh, gut-wrenching. Yeah, it felt good in an odd way mm -hmm. because, yes, yeah, I'd gone through the process. It, it meant that I'd been selected and, and there had been a lot of potential there. Mm -hmm. But I'd already sort of come to the realization a short while before that that life was going to be different for me. The doctor had already come in and, and I'll, I'll say, given me the talk yeah. that I wasn't going to walk again. Wow. I don't know if I was different than others, but the way I looked at it, it wasn't a really long process for me to, I'll say, move on. Hmm. And they, they always talk about, you know, you go through, you know, grief and denial and all these different stages. 
I don't think I stayed in a state of denial or in a state of grief for a very long time. In fact, it might have almost been moments, if you will. I could remember the, the doc coming in one night, came in and he said, can I have a talk with you? I said, sure, no problem. And he looked at me, he said, you know, I'm going to come right to it because of the nature of your injury and the and the damage that's been done to your spine, you're not going to walk again. Mm. And I kind of looked at him and I said, okay, can I have a moment? Mm. And he said, sure. And he went out of the room and I kind of leaned my head back into my pillow. And I uh, thought to myself, like, what does this mean life is going to be like? Mm-hmm. At that moment, I can, I can remember thinking I, I couldn't picture it. Mm-hmm. I like it to you're, you're standing in a doorway and the doors open but the room you're looking into is completely dark. Hmm. Hmm. You have no idea what's in the room. Yeah. And that's how I would describe the life I've gone on to lead. So I had no idea what to expect, but I knew I had to step into the room. And I knew that I was going to have to figure out, one, how to get around in the room, mm-hmm. yeah. what was in the room, and how to approach the room as something that had tremendous potential. It could be whatever I wanted. That's a great way to look at it. That's how I've gone on to approach yeah. everything. I've tried lots and lots of different things over the course of my life. And that's the process of discovering the room and everything that's in it. Mm-hmm. And for me, I've, I've found that that room has been massive and wow. has mm-hmm. been filled with all kinds of amazing things. You know, we were just talking about kids. <laughs> I've got three amazing kids who can certainly be challenging <laughs> at times, but I wouldn't give them up. Yeah. Not for a moment. For sure. Thinking back to when the doctor shared with you that you wouldn't walk again. I've thought about this a few times with, with you and others. And I mean, I don't envy anybody in that situation, the doctor or the patient. Do you appreciate the way that he told you looking back on it? I mean, I know it would, it would differ from person to person for how you're being told, but did you appreciate that bluntness? I always appreciate people who are direct. I think you can be direct to a person without being cold. Mm. I appreciate in all contexts because it doesn't make anything clouded. It doesn't leave things open to misinterpretation. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was tough. And at that moment I was like, wow, that's harsh. (laughs) But there's no point beating around the bush. You know, let's get right to it. I'll use another example. Like there've been some times when as as a coach, I've had to cut a player. And it doesn't do a a player any good if you beat around the bush and kind of soft shoe it and everything. And they need to know and they need to they need to know clearly, but you can still be sensitive in saying that. You can be you can be direct, you can be clear and yet sensitive and empathetic in the same moment. And I think that's really, really important. And I think that at least for me, I don't know if it helped my approach at all. Like it just got me to move on or not, but Mm -hmm. I just appreciated there wasn't any gray area and it probably did in some way, shape or form, help me to just say, well, if this is the direction I'm going, then I'm going to approach it a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sounds like you took a pretty good route there. So what came first, basketball or the woman? At first, after my accident, I was in the rehab center in Ottawa and one of the local players from the local club team, the Ottawa Royals, a guy named Eddie Katrowski, great, great player, actually great club player and and taught me a lot of different things early on in my career. Mm-hmm. He came up to my room one night and said, Hey, I, I heard you played basketball. And, uh, hold on a second here. You see, you can hear my kids in the background. Oh, I don't know yeah. if you can or not, uh, No, <laughs> but we're almost certain to get a visit from my youngest Devin. Mm-hmm. He has a zoom bomb nice. all the time. <laughs> he has an uncanny instinct to know yeah. when I'm on zoom uncanny. 
It was just the four-year anniversary of that newscaster who was Zooming from home when his toddler busted into the room, his baby wheeled in, then his wife (laughs) rushed in with her pants undone because she came from the bathroom. And I saw it posted with a comment, it's the anniversary of when we didn't know this would become all of us. (laughs) Too funny. (laughs) Anyway, so we shall look forward to that. Anyway, so one night Eddie Kotrowski came up to my room in rehab and he heard that I'd played basketball as a kid growing up. He wanted to know if I'd try out wheelchair basketball. I went and hopped in a chair and went down to the gym at the rehab center in Ottawa and tried shooting baskets. And I was horrible. And when I mean horrible, like I I couldn't get the ball to the basket, to the net. And when I mean I couldn't get it to the net, I I couldn't physically shoot it high enough so it could even touch the net. I'm not surprised. I use a lot of power from my legs, so I wouldn't be able to do either. Tons of power generation, but I'd grown up as a gym rat. I was the kid that was the first one in the gym, the last one out of the gym. I was the kid that shoveled off the court in wintertime, shot baskets Uh in the snow. And so all of a sudden, something that I had done Uh for like eight, nine years, and I couldn't even get the ball to touch the net. And I was like, oh, forget that's, this. Oh, that's humbling. I'm not doing it. And so I said to myself, you know what, if I can't play basketball, maybe I can coach it. I actually called up my old basketball coach at high school. I said, coach, you know, you've heard about my accident. I was wondering if I could help coach the team, help out. And he said, I'll do you one better, Frog. They all called me Frog back then. I and like actually, it. Most of my ball players still do. Uh-huh. And he said, you can coach the team. And I was like, okay, great. You know, I didn't really think that much about it. I said, okay, great. And so I actually started coaching when I was about two months post-injury and I was still in rehab. And what I'd do is I would get up early in the morning. I'd get all showered, cleaned up. I'd go down to the front door of rehab. My dad would come by, pick me up. I didn't have a car yet. He'd drop me off at the high school. I'd run practice. And then I'd catch the paratransport bus in Ottawa. I'd catch it back to the rehab center where I was still living. I do all my therapy in the afternoon, write my practices, and then do it the next day. And so I got into coaching at first. Oh. But then being on the court and running practices and being around a basketball and all that type of thing, it, it was like having an itch that you have to scratch. Mm-hmm. So the summer after I started coaching, I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it out. I'm going to get back into it. So I literally went down. I wheeled down to my, the old basketball court that I grew up on. It's an asphalt court just in Beacon Hill on the east side of Ottawa mm-hmm. and started shooting. And uh, it was at these old wooden fan backboard. It's a classic outdoor asphalt court. And I, I started to get back into it. And then I went back to the Ottawa Royals and I asked them if I could come to a, a practice or two. And I started practicing with them. And in the spring of 1988, just shortly after I'd started, I was out with a few of the guys one night. And they said, you know, Frog, if, if you train, you could go to the Paralympics. Hmm. And I was like, well, what, what are the Paralympics? And they explained it to me. And I've always been somebody who, when I try something, if I'm going to do it, I'm all in. I'm 100% in or I'm really not going to waste my time with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that was it. I, I want to take and see how far I could go with basketball. Awesome. So then you started with the national team then in 1988 when I really started playing. Okay. And that's spring of 88. And then in spring of 89, I uh, made my first Canadian team. I was selected to the Canadian National Men's Developmental Team that went to Stoke Manville in 1989. And uh, we won the first gold medal in men's wheelchair basketball in Canada at that time. So I was part of a really unique group of individuals. Yeah, that's historic. So then the first Paralympic Games that you did was 92 in Barcelona? Yep, 92 in Barcelona. And it was a phenomenal experience. And there are a couple of things I always remember about that. The first was, I remember we were getting ready to play Spain. 
This was a couple of weeks after the dream team had been there. The first dream team, not the subsequent ones. Uh, this one with Jordan and Magic and Bird and everything like that. And I remember we're sitting in the warm up, and I was on the baseline and I was shooting and the, the fans in the stands were cheering and it was so loud from the cheering that the backboard, I could watch it and it was vibrating back oh, and forth. Man. A couple of inches oh. from all of the noise in the stadium. And I was thinking of two things. One, isn't this cool? I'm on the same <laughs> court Jordan was just playing on. Oh, man, so cool. And then the other thing I was thinking is, how am I going to hit a shot on a moving backboard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how did your team do that year? We underachieved. Going into the games, we thought we had a good chance at a medal, maybe even a gold. We'd beat the U.S. the year before in Great Britain in the tournament in England. And they were the number one ranked team in the world. We thought that we had a chance at not just a medal, maybe even a gold medal. Mm -hmm. but we came out and we lost our opening game against Great Britain. And we never recovered from that as a team. We mm -hmm. had tremendous potential. The, the group of guys on that team, unbelievable athletic ability. Some of the best players ever in Canadian wheelchair basketball and some great players on a worldwide basis. But we weren't able to bounce back from that loss. Mm -hmm. We ended up carrying that with us throughout the tournament and we underperformed as a result and it that taught me a lot of different things it taught mm -hmm. me how to approach loss and i use that in a lot of different places but i continued to use those kinds of lessons as i moved on in my coaching career later on and that was really that what you do from a loss is it's really important that you learn from the loss mm -hmm. and that you take the lessons from that and you move forward and you don't sit and you don't dwell on it you don't second guess things. So what you do is you take a loss and you learn from it. You take mistakes, you learn from them. And I try to apply that from that point on. So we underperformed. We didn't do nearly as well. We ended up fourth overall, just out of the medals. Okay. Well, let's introduce a little segment I like to call wheelchair basketball for dum-dums. This one right here. <laughs> I used to play basketball. I kind of felt pressured to do it. I felt like I had to, so I wasn't good until the end of grade 12 when all of a sudden, I, I don't know, I just didn't really care anymore. And then I got good and I got most improved. Woohoo. Anyways, so I'm familiar with stand-up basketball, wheelchair basketball. First of all, the wheelchairs that you use, are they different than the wheelchairs that you regularly use? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's really three main differences between stand-up basketball and wheelchair basketball. First off, we use the same court, same hoop, everything like that. Three-point lines the same, the free throw lines the same. The hoop is the same height and everything? Basket's the same height. It's oh, you guys must be so jacked. Whew. Strong. But that's one of the things you spend time doing is learning how to generate that power for everything. But there's a, a couple of minor rule differences. The first one is how we can dribble. There's no double dribble. We can put the ball in our lap, take two pushes, and then we have to dribble at least one time. If you end up taking three pushes, that's when we call a travel. Okay. And so what you do is you can put the ball in your lap, take two pushes, dribble, two pushes, dribble. Or as you get better, you just learn how to dribble and propel the chair with your other hand. So that's one of the differences. The chair is part of the body. So if I'm getting ready to shoot and I get hit in the arm, that's a foul. But if I'm getting ready to shoot and I get hit in the chair and it turns my chair, that can also be called a foul. I had lots and lots of debates with officials over the years as to exactly what constitutes a foul, but I think every coach goes through those. Those are really the main rule differences. And the basketball is the same size too? Same size basketball. My goodness. My boys and I were watching Team Canada against Netherlands, and you catch and pass and everything with one hand. Like so often they just like catch it and go, and their hands absolutely dwarf the ball. And I'm like, surely that's a smaller ball because they're just handling that as I would a baseball. It's a lot of one-handed passing and catching. And then as you mentioned, the wheelchair is different. And so yeah. 
each wheelchair is custom designed for that individual based oh. off of their body size, their dimension, and their level of function based off of their disability. And there's some subtle little differences from an everyday chair. You see the wheels are usually at an angle instead of straight up and down. And that's to allow you to turn more quickly and to give you more stability, a wider base. So when you get hit, and we do get hit a lot, you don't tip over. We're strapped into it with the same kinds of bindings you use with snowboarding. And if you can imagine, we're strapped at our hips, maybe at our thighs, at our feet. Think of it like, think of a basketball wheelchair like a basketball shoe. You want a nice snug shoe that's laced on so that the shoe moves with your foot. And that's how we have the chair set up. We have two casters on the back of the chair that prevents us from tipping backwards to a large degree, not entirely. We still tip backwards sometimes. And then we've got a fender in the front that actually protects our feet from getting hit. And it's a wider chair because we don't have to worry about narrow doorways and going up and down curbs or anything like that. So it's very different from the everyday chair that I use. Oh, that's interesting. And so how often do people get rammed over despite all these things that are meant to keep the chair upright? All the time. time. I used to have a saying with our ball players: if you can't get up, you can't play. And so one of the first things I would teach our new players when I coached college and with the national team is we would spend time teaching them how to fall over and how to get up on their own. Because if they're not in danger of being run over in, in the play, the refs just let the play keep going until one team has an advantage and then they'll blow the whistle and then a person can come out and and help them up. I don't want our guys or our ladies to be laying on the ground for a long period of time out of the game. I want them to get up quickly. One of the great things is once you learn to fall down and get back up on your own, you're more willing to go as fast as you can and you're not worried about falling down anymore. Mm -hmm. So you play just a bit harder. It's like you fell once. It's not so bad. (laughs) Exactly. And the last thing that's really cool about wheelchair basketball, and it's it's a little bit different than some of the other, a lot of the other Paralympic sports, it's the classification system. Each player is assigned a point value based off of their level of function. The less function you've got, the lower your point value. So I'm paralyzed from the chest down. I've got the lowest function you generally have in wheelchair basketball. So I was given a point value of one all the way up to a point value of 4.5 for somebody who's like a single baloney amputee and has all of their upper body, their abdominals, their back extensors, hip flexors, their upper leg, even part of their lower leg. They'd be a 4.5. And we're allowed to have no more than 14 cumulative points on the court at one time. So you might have two 4.5s, a class three, and two class ones. So it's a really neat system for mixing different levels of function and ability on the court at the same time. That is neat. Would some of the 4.5s off of the wheelchair basketball court, would they have prosthetics and be walking? Absolutely. Okay, interesting. So is it harder for them to get around, you think, on the court? Because they're not as used to just using those muscles for operating the wheelchair. There might be an initial period where they got to get used to pushing a chair around. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, when they've done enough training, there's no difference between how they move the chair mm. and how, say, I move the chair. And they actually move the chair a bit better because they've got more muscle to use yeah. to find that motion. Yeah. A great example of it, if anybody's out there and wants to search somebody up online, have some fun, look for Pat Anderson. Pat's one of the players I used to coach. He's arguably the best player in the world, maybe in history. And wow. when you watch him move in a wheelchair, that 
that wheelchair and his body, they're, they're one. He can, he can make that chair do anything he wants. And what's his classification? He's a 4.5. He's a 4.5. Okay. Now I'm going to be, I'm going to be watching. Oh, I love that detail. Thank you for the inside information. And scoring wise, what are the standard game points you'd see? So generally speaking, what you're going to see is, and we've got Tokyo coming up. If anybody's watching those games, they can expect that on the men's side, you're going to see scores in around, you know, teams scoring 70 to 80 points a game. And on the women's side, probably somewhere between, if you're looking at the top four teams, you're going to looking at being looking at teams scoring between 65 and 75 points a game. Wow. So very comparable to mm-hmm. their counterparts who are playing stand-up. You're still coaching now, right? Yeah. And are yeah. You, you're yeah. going to Tokyo? No, what I do is I work with our developing athletes in our Canadian okay. national program. I work with what we call our next generation athletes. So I work with the athletes just before they move up to the senior team. And I work with them as they come up from the provinces. And they begin to make that transition up into our training center here in Toronto. And then once they come to the training center in Toronto, I work with them full time and then I move them on up to our senior teams. Oh, that's so awesome. So when you were being coached, did you have a coach that was also a wheelchair basketball player? Uh, No. Oh, that's so cool that you can provide that for the new ones coming up. Yeah. All my coaches, my national team head coach, and even my provincial coaches and my coach in college down in the States were all individuals who were able-bodied. And we're coaching wheelchair basketball. I actually fall into kind of a unique category there. Very unique. In that there's not that many, particularly at a high level, coaches with disabilities who coach yeah. in wheelchair basketball. Wow. You found your niche. I did. I was, I was talking with, I can't remember whether it's my daughter or my son the other day. We were talking about paths as they start thinking mm-hmm. about what they're going to do in life. And I said that, you know, when I was their age, the job of wheelchair basketball coach just simply didn't exist. There was Mm. nobody that was paid Mm full-time to coach wheelchair basketball. So there was no way in a million years if when I was 15 years old, somebody said, one day you're going to coach wheelchair basketball. Yeah, I couldn't have imagined it. Mm. So my advice to them is don't worry about what you're going to do. You're going to go through a path that's going to have you try lots and lots of different things. And Mm -hmm. the important thing is to be willing to try lots of things, not be worried that one of them is the thing, but Mm -hmm. to learn from each thing. Yeah. Every event, every sport, every job, every relationship can be a learning opportunity. It sounds like your mindset and mentality from the beginning of appreciating being direct, but not cold, that kind of sets you up to be a good coach in the first place. So I wondered if you might eventually find yourself in coaching in some capacity, regardless of whether or not you had your accident. Yeah, it's it's funny. I would never have, when I was a young adult, said that I was going to be going into teaching. That's in essence what I see myself. Hmm. I see myself as a teacher. It happens to be that I'm using wheelchair basketball to teach. And and some of the things I'm teaching are things like how to play one-on-one defense and how to pick and roll. But other things I try to teach are you know how to set goals how to stay focused how to get through adversity things like that mm-hmm. one of the things i've been told particularly recently i was doing some professional development stuff and i did some assessments and and one of the things that came out of the assessment they said that on a scale of zero to 100 and it comes to taking risks zero being you will never take any risk and 100 being you will take any risk at all your you know <laughs> all the risks you no risk aversion <laughs> I, I was a hundred. Oh man. <laughs> and I think, well, that makes sense. You know, I was yeah. speeding and I crashed my car, oh. stuff like that. But I sat down and I, I was reflecting on it. And really what it is that I, I don't want to say I don't worry about an outcome, 
But what I do is I assess each situation based off of what I've learned. So I'm always looking at the process that I go through. So if every situation you go through, you assess its value based off of have you learned something. And if you see you can learn from every situation, then you would try every situation because you can be successful because you can always learn. Mm -hmm. And that's how I always approach it is I can learn from every single situation. Some are really difficult lessons. Some are really easy lessons. Some are fun. Some are hard. Mm -hmm. But every situation, every lesson is everything I go through is, is successful because I always learn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Be interested to hear. I want to do lessons you've learned from success, but also lessons you've learned from some of those difficult times. So in your past, what are the three most successful times that the three memories of wow that's next level i can never just name three i've been <laughs> so fortunate i can look back and i can see so many times that i've had an opportunity to be part of some really really unique moments i'll stick with some basketball ones mm. for now though i can picture right now in my mind i can picture in the spring of 1989 the, the first group of athletes i coached the high school basketball players from Colonel By Secondary School, the team I was coaching, I can see us in the city championship. The buzzer goes, and I can see the celebration on the court. I can picture our starting point guard, Andrew Hayes, we called him Droopy, mm -hmm. standing at midcourt in the gym at Carleton University, and he's just like this, quietly holding up one finger. Mm. And in that moment, there's sort of a, a rush of all the time spent together, all of the different things leading up to that moment. Correspondingly, I was, I was telling a story the other day about the University of Illinois women's wheelchair basketball team I coached one year. And two weeks before the national championship, our starting point guard, our leading scorer, Christina Rip, called her Barney. Mm. She broke a wrist. So we were going to be starting two freshmen that had basically not played at all. And I had to completely revamp our offense and our defense. That group of young ladies, nobody thought they were going to finish in a top three at nationals. Thought we were toast, but they did exactly what they needed to do in that complete commitment mm. to the team effort. And we ended up losing the national championship game to a group of players from LA Stars. And that group contained four former player of the year award winners. And we were down by two points with a minute and a half to play before hmm. one of our sophomore starters and junior starters fouled out and we had to sub in two more freshmen. Oh. And we ended up losing by like six points. It's the closest a team has ever come to playing to its potential. And we lost. Oh, wow. And I'm more proud of that yeah. team mm -hmm. than those young ladies. There was no sadness at all in yeah. that moment. I, I was just ecstatic. That's pretty with cool. How the ladies had done. Athens in 2004 when we won. That might be, there's a strong argument that team in Athens. They went 8-0. They won by like an average 24 points a game. That might be the best wheelchair basketball team of all time. They wow. were so talented. At the end of that game in Athens, the moment that is captured for me as well, the buzzer went and I'm watching all of our ballplayers. They're celebrating out on the court. And I have that wash of moments coming over me. I'm seeing all of those, the trips overseas to prepare and the two and three day practices we did at training camps and all the travel and sacrifice we went through. But in 2004, different than in previous Paralympics that I've been to, that was my first Paralympics married. And one of the officials, my wife was in the stands, one of the officials, my wife was up there, he knew her, and he said to her, her, her name's Maureen, uh, we call her Mo, he said, Mo, what are you doing? And she goes, oh, I, I just, I'm just celebrating, it's great. And he said, do you want to come down on the court? She's like, am I allowed? I mean, security, and I'm like this, he goes, 
don't worry, I'll take care of it. So this official is named, named John Burford, great friend of mine, great official. Don't let him hear it. I said that. <laughs> don't let that get out. <laughs> but my wife came down to the court and, you know, she'd been going through this journey. We'd gotten married in 2002. So for two years, she'd been going through the journey with me. We'd mm-hmm. shared in it. And she got a chance in that moment at center court to sit down in my lap. And she looked at me and she goes, as she's in the midst of this celebration and she can feel the rush and the release of emotion. And she looked at me, she goes, now I know why you do it. Aww, she felt it. Yeah, it was so cool because I knew the moment, but one of the sports photographers took a picture of that moment and sent me the picture. And so we have it hanging up in my wife's office. That's awesome. It was a cool moment. And it was neat because as you guys know, it's going through all of this is not the same if you do it just by yourself. Mm. Getting a chance to share and having somebody fully understand everything that you've gone through, not just the good things, but actually the the difficulties and the depth of emotional commitment that you make. Mm -hmm. And somebody completely understands that because they've been on that journey with you. In fact, supported you on that journey. To have somebody to share that Mm. kind of deep experience with is something really special. And I'm I'm so glad that I've gotten a chance to travel that with my wife. The relationships are so important the teammates, with the spouses, with their families, that all these accolades, the gold medals don't mean much if it's not about the relationships and the people we share them with. Yeah. I'd love to hear your love story with Mo. Can I just ask a really uh, oh. side question real quick? Yeah. Just a side question. Barney, Droopy, Mo, Frog, are you allowed to be involved in wheelchair basketball in any capacity if you do not have a nickname? <laughs> For whatever reason, I just end up... You're a nickname guy? I'm a nickname guy and I've always had lots of like, I've had a nickname forever and it just seems that all the teams that I've been part of, everybody ends up with some kind of a nickname of some sort or another. And I heard it best explained by our former women's head coach, Tim Frick, great coach. What he said about nicknames, because he would give nicknames to everybody. He said it was a way of creating belonging and Mm -hmm. unique belonging in the group. When you had a nickname, it was by definition, it meant you were part of the group. Mm-hmm. It really helped build the team. He used to give some just wild nicknames to, yeah. to players. Connection. That's fun. Sorry, Lowell, you can ask your question again. I interrupted you. Yeah, I was actually, I had noted that too, that the nicknames, it was a really cool theme. So that's, that's great. We're on the same page. It's interesting that she went for the nickname and I'm, I'm going for the love story. So maybe that's, <laughs> but I am interested. These relationships and as somebody who has a disability and it was actually part of our story, Julie married a blind person knowing that I was going to get more blind through our life. She married into something knowing it was going to be challenging. There's going to be some hardship, but there are also going to be these amazing opportunities that came from that. She actually didn't know some yeah, of these Yeah, no, we didn't know all the, the amazing opportunities. I was just like, ah, no, this guy's, this guy's cool in spite of the going away vision. So let's just see where this takes us. No, that's awesome. So Mo has had this unique part in your life. And I'm just interested in how that happened, how that unfolded. And then I have some follow-up questions. <laughs> We were both graduate students at the University of Illinois. I was working on my PhD and my grad assistantship was coaching the men's and women's wheelchair basketball teams there. Mm -hmm. She was working on her master's in speech pathology (gasps) and she did a grad assistantship. I'm a speech pathologist. You're a Slurpee. (laughs) SLRP. That's right. New connection. How exciting. Carry on, carry on. I will continue (laughs) to listen. I'm going to have to share that with her for sure. (laughs) You love that. Carry on. (laughs) Okay. No. No problem. So she ended up taking a grad assistantship in our program at the University of Illinois as the manager of our wheelchair basketball team. And so she started that in fall of 2000. So what would happen is when we would go on road trips, 
she would be driving one of the vehicles. I'd hop in the vehicle and we'd just talk. We literally did that for a couple of years where we're on these road trips and we're traveling together and she'd come into the office, she'd be helping with the team, doing things, we're talking all the time. And so our friendship really grew. Mm -hmm. And what we were is we became really, really good friends first. We talked mm -hmm. about everything, knew about everything about each other, but we didn't date. And quite honestly, I wouldn't date her because she was our manager. For me, that was just kind of, no, you just can't cross that line, mm -hmm. you know, creates all kinds of blurred stuff. Mm -hmm. And so in 2001, she was getting ready to graduate and our season was over. And one night I had a, a celebration. We got approval to start a statewide wheelchair basketball program at the high school level in Illinois. So mm -hmm. I called her up. I told her and said, Hey, you want to come over, have a couple beers, we'll celebrate. And she came over and had a couple beers and we we're talking and stuff like this. And, and she was done with her grad assistantship. So uh, one thing led to another and Six weeks later, I proposed to her. Wow. And we got married a year after that. Wow. You obviously so, had a very solid base there, hey? It was. It was what was so funny about it was everybody tells me a story, our ball players in particular. What they said was they knew there was something different right off the bat. Oh. Because they said before that, when I would get in the vehicle, whoever was driving, I would look at them and, and I'd say, do you know where we're going? And they'd say, yes. And I'd say, okay, wake me up when we get there. And I go to sleep. <laughs> and I'd sleep the entire trip, but all of a sudden I wasn't asleep. Hmm. I actually wasn't self-aware of this <laughs> myself. I even remember one time I was already up at the national championships at the national tournament doing some scouting before our team had to arrive. And our team was driving up from, from Champaign, Illinois to Chicago. And she was driving the group up and the guys were in, in the van and one of them packed. Pat Anderson was in the van and he's like partway through he's he's going oh my gosh I don't know how Frog does this man you know flirting with you this whole time is exhausting <laughs> did Mo perceive your interacting as flirting at all or was she as oblivious as you were <laughs> no she probably is a little bit more self-aware about some of these kinds of things than I am she said to one of her friends at, at one point that she wouldn't date me she'd marry me but she wouldn't date me well, she proved that by getting engaged to after six weeks. Yeah, I've never been quite sure how to take that, but since we're married, I'll take that the right way. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Before Lowell and I started dating, we went on a couple of retreats with a club we were involved with on campus. And because he can't see in the dark, I took it upon myself to like, oh, I have to hold his hand. I have to touch him and, and guide him around. It's it's necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I needed the help. So sneaky, hey? I'm sure no one, there you go. no one was suspicious at all. We actually spent some time on that same university. We were down there for, for a treat at one point. That's an interesting part of our early, one of our, I think the first year of our dating life, we were down there. So. Nice, nice. When was that? We started dating in 2003. I was coaching down there. We were married, living in Champaign-Urbana. So oh. we were in the same city at one point with you guys. We were. Look at all these connections coming in. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> Follow-up question. What have you learned from Mo? Oh, wow. I am absolutely a better person and a better coach for Mo. She's always challenged me to explore how I think about things. She's a unique individual in that she always sees the beauty in things. And where I might learn from things, she sees beauty in so many things. Mm. She is an unbelievable speech pathologist. And I watch and I listen how she teaches. And I take things I hear she does and I watch her do. And I apply those th same things to our players. And she pushes me to become a better person and a better coach. What age group does she work with? She works with kids zero to four or five years old. If Lowell were to follow what I do and apply it to his clients, he would be giving them little rocket candies and stickers daily. Is that how you help your athletes along? <laughs> 
<laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> but I tell you, I certainly watch and I watch Mo and I watch and see how much fun she makes mm-hmm. learning language and the creativity working with kids you just can't use the same thing all the time you're always having to kind of bring in new ways for them learning and that causes me to constantly think about new ways i can get our ball players mm. to do things yeah i found that it's definitely the relationship with the kids that serves me most well i just have fun with them there are much yeah. smarter speech pathologists out there than me but i like hanging with the kids so yeah. <laughs> that's what i use <laughs> and it's a great point of fun and relationship when focused can actually lead to so much growth, so much learning. Mm-hmm. It puts people into that receptive state. If it's all fear and all correction and all judgment, it's harder to learn. So these relationships, safety can help. I'm an introvert by nature, sometimes not always perceived to be the warmest person. But one of the things I think is absolutely important is that the people that you want to help maximize the potential of, that you have to develop a relationship with them. And you have to develop a relationship that goes beyond just what you're teaching. And one of the things I tell coaches when I'm working with young coaches is I don't want them to show up at practice at the start of practice. I want them to come to practice and be the first one there. And then what I want them to do is I want them to check in with all of their athletes. And when they go to check in with their athletes, I actually don't want them to be really talking about basketball. I want them to be going up and saying, oh, yeah, I heard you took a speech course the other day. How was that? Oh, you're you're taking an intro to, to psych class. How is that going? Yeah. Hey, uh, you know, you did a podcast the other day. Was it fun? I want to check in on all the other other things in their life Yeah, because they're important, not just for what they can do on the court, but for what they can do, period. Did you mean to just describe our lives right there? He's a psychologist, I'm a speech pathologist, and we have a podcast. You're very, very on point there, Frog. There you go. I'm impressed. That's synergy right there. Love it. It's so key. Like you touched on one of the things you talked about, and at least that point about trust and vulnerability. If I'm going to help a person maximize their potential, one of our ballplayers, they have to trust me. That's just all there is to it. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen. So for them to trust me, I have to know more about them. They have to have been able to be vulnerable to me, tell me different parts of their life and seen me handle those bits carefully Mm -hmm. and with value. And by the same token, I've actually got to do the same thing, too. I've got to share parts of what's going on in me so that they see that, yeah, you know what? I trust them by also sharing some of those types of things with them. And out of that relationship, sharing those vulnerabilities back and forth, beginning to trust each other, mm-hmm. you build on those layers and you get deeper and deeper and deeper trust. And out of that, we can get some tremendous growth in individuals. And that's actually what building a team is about too. Mm-hmm. It's about everybody in that team, trusting everybody. And that's a long process. It starts with building relationships and it's about more than just a relationship on the court. Mm-hmm. It's the whole person. Yeah. People are multidimensional. Wow. Awesome. We have a segment we'd like to do with you and I'm going to start with a bit of audio. This is word bird athlete edition. So if you know Fred Penner, remember back in the day, he's still singing and dancing. So he's a Canadian singer songwriter for kids. So this comes from his TV show and I'll just play a little audio and then we'll jump into the segment. Okay. Word bird. Okay. Partner, send down the word. Thanks buddy. Thanks. Buddy. Oh, see what the word is today? So we're looking to see what the word is. So <laughs> he would have this little bird up in a tree and he would drop a word down and then he'd describe it to the kids. So what we want to do is drop a word in for you and have you respond back what that word means to you. Hold on. 
just one second. My son just dropped in. Deb, do you want to say hi? Do you want to wave? Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good. There you go. That's the Zoom bomb. The right Zoom there. bomb. Good. We've, we've met one of three. Do you have any pets? We do. We have a cat, oh. Stella. And does your cat ever scratch your eyeballs? Because I am scared of cats because I fear that they will do that to me. You know what? Our cat gets along great with me. <laughs> I never have a problem with the cat. But the cat, interestingly, attacks my wife's and my daughter's ankles all the time. Okay, better their ankles than their faces, but still. Yeah, this is why I'm a, we have a giant St. Bernard. I'm a dog person. Oh, we used to have a pug named Toby. (gasps) Our dog's name is Toby. Oh, wow. (laughs) Hey, this is Toby right here. Toby, come here. Oh, nice. That's awesome. He's huge. (laughs) You were just saying that your Toby was on your, he would go on your shoulder, did you say? When he was a puppy, he used to sleep right up, nestled in the oh. crook of my neck with his, his mouth right up near my ear. And oh. if you know anything about pugs, they also snore. So he would sit oh, there no. and he would be snoring. <laughs> oh, these dogs. Oh, the animals. Dogs. Now he's, he's pushing me out. That's awesome. So now we've called. <laughs> yeah. he's, pushing, he's pushing me away. He's, he's shoving Lola away. <laughs> yeah. He knows he can pretty much get attention whenever he wants. He's, he's big enough oh. and cute enough. <laughs> He'll just make it yeah. happen. <laughs> Okay, back to word bird, Lord. Back to word bird. Sorry, buddy. Yeah, okay. I'm going to push the dog back a little bit. Okay, talk, come this way, buddy. <laughs> now you called him. Yeah. All right, I'll get back in frame. Oh, you oh he's pushing push me away again. I'm on a rolling chair, too, so he's got the 200-pound mass just to push me. Come on the other side, honey. I'll pet you over here. Okay, I mean, come on the other side. Come I'm to put him. Okay, cool. So we saw your son. Which son was that? Devin. That Devin? was Devin. Devin. Awesome. Fun. And he's 13, you said? You have 13, 14, and 15? Yeah, 13, 14, and 15. Yep. Fun ages. They are, yeah. Does it they still keep getting are. more and more fun at that age? Because our kids are almost eight and nine, and just every single year we're like, oh, no, this is the best. Oh, no, 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 this one is the best. Or does it plateau? <laughs> no, it's – the part that's tough right now is – we can start to see like our, our daughters in, in grade 10 or middle guys in grade nine. Now we can start to see them finishing up school and moving and writing that next chapter in their life. And it's like, now it's a rush. It's like, mm-hmm. and I mean, by rush, I mean like, oh my gosh, too we've fast. only got <laughs> yeah. three more years with our daughter. We've only got four more years with our middle guy. And it's like, oh, we want to try to get every single moment yeah, uh, that thought is crazy to me. Lowell said that before about our eldest. Like, we're half done with him. I'm like, no. <laughs> we have a couple of ball players that are really young kids when they're sitting there and they, they get torn. And I'm sure this happens with you. you. You got lots of things going on. You're like, oh man, I'd love to spend time with the son and stuff like this, but I got this coming up. And what I always tell our ball players is you will never regret spending too much time with your kids. Mm-hmm. I've never heard a parent look back and say, you know what? I spent too much time yeah. with my son or my daughter growing up. We hear the opposite, but never too much. So I say, mm-hmm. if you're going to make a mistake, spend too much time with your kids. Yeah. Great advice. Good advice. Yeah. Sorry. Great. I said good. I meant great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, that is a big challenge of high-performing athletes. This constant pull of family, job, responsibilities, rest, recovery. And for me, with children, yeah. it's always that how much time I want to spend more and also mm-hmm. perform at high level. We haven't done a great job in our sports system. Our sports system is based off of athlete development, and it's not based off of holistic athlete development. Mm. And as you know, so much of it is the sport is at the center, and everything else has to find a way to fit in with it. And that's why we have these kinds of problems. That's why we have imbalances 
we lose athletes that mm-hmm. could be in sport longer because of shifting priorities. And I think what we need to do is we really need to rethink how we're designing our sport system and look at how we can create a more holistic one that allows for all the parts of our life to fit together better. And then we're going to see athletes stay in high-performance sport longer, stay in sport longer in Mm -hmm. one shape or another. And I think we'll actually see them perform better too. Mm -hmm. But that's my own little soapbox. I agree with your soapbox. Love it. (laughs) Okay. So about 20 minutes ago, Lowell introduced WordBird. (laughs) (laughs) We've gone on a lot of different paths and it's all good. It all leads to the beautiful thing is underneath there's truth, there's wisdom here. Wordbird Frog Edition. What do these words mean to you? And okay. you can kind of quick or kind of unpack them a little bit. First word. Okay. Win. Winning is nice, but it's not everything. And it has a tendency of being momentary. And it's actually the process that is lasting. And so it's focusing on the body of work and not the single win. Mm-hmm. Second word. Please wait, before oh. you go on to the next word, with the word win, on mindset go... I don't remember if you said it directly to Tracy, your participant, or in the digital exclusive, but you emphasized win the day. Win the day. That's how I go about approaching a day. Every single day when I get on the court, I want that to be my gold medal day. And so that's how I approach practice. I think everything that I would bring to a gold medal game, all that attention, all that focus, the composure, the way I process information, the way I interact with everything. I'm going to do that today in practice. And that's how I get a win. So at the end of every day, do you give yourself an imaginary gold medal or a real gold medal? Do you have a collection? You could. (laughs) I reflect on each day. That's smart. I sit back and I think, what was the thing that I did really, really well today that I want to keep doing? And what was the thing that, man, I I probably need to do a better job of that tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I spend each day very, very actively reflecting on the whole day and how I can do a better job the next day. It makes you very intentional. I'm sure. Yeah. We have really good friends that they do gratefuls every night and just helps you focus on the positive and yeah. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. You're up. Word number two, (laughs) distractions. Distractions are a pitch in the dirt. And what I mean by that is distractions are things that pull you away from what you need to do. You don't swing at a pitch in the dirt. You let it go by. And if you swing at a pitch in the dirt, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your effort. You're getting pulled away from your goal. That's what distractions do. There are pitches in the dirt. They pull you away from your path, your goal. Mm -hmm. Nice. Pride. What does pride mean to you? Pride is both good and bad. Pride in our accomplishments is negative. It is sort of selfish and narrow. Pride in the effort we put in is something good. Mm. It's something we should strive for. Pride in effort, particularly applied to help others. I worked hard today to help another person. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good thing. So we, we have to balance that. We get caught up in saying pride is all good or pride is all bad, and it is neither. It can be both, and we just want to make sure we stay on the positive side of it. Mm-hmm. Another word, bird. Strength. Oof. That's interesting. I'd say it's internal. Mm. I think true strength is internal. It's not external. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you proving that, and a lot of these athletes are proving that in a lot of ways. The last one I have for you today is support. What does support mean to you? I'm thinking in terms of family. Yeah. I'm thinking of all those parts. The first thing when you say support, I think of my wife actually right off the bat. Mm. I think of my kids. I think of my parents. And I think of all the things that I would never have had an opportunity to do without that support. Mm. And it's a reminder that that's something I always want to give back is support. Mm. It's a way of saying thanks to all those who've given it to me is to also give that to others. Mm -hmm. 
That reminds me, I was thinking earlier when you were talking about traveling with the wheelchair basketball team and the additional wheelchairs that you guys have, I was thinking about support. What kind of supports do you guys have that you travel with as a team? Well, generally all the ball players, they take care of their own chairs. They move them around and load them, unload them, all that type of thing. So we don't get a lot of support and don't really need it. When I travel with the University of Illinois men's and women's teams, I always had the basketball players load and unload the bus. Mm -hmm. I felt that was really, really important. It was part of our credo. You know, one, I didn't want the bus driver doing that. I, yeah. I felt like you, you're taking care of driving us there. We'll take care of keeping the bus clean for you. We'll la load all the equipment. You don't need to do that. We can do that. We're not above taking care of all these things at all. Mm -hmm. And we had a, at a saying, take care of your equipment and your equipment takes care of you. Mm -hmm. And so it's part of taking care of your equipment. But there's a whole host of individuals that help our ball players in our Canadian national program. We have a strength coach, Colby Hathaway, who's phenomenal. We have medical personnel, Brett Nagata and Paul Murata, who keep all of our ball players healthy. And that's it first and foremost. Mm -hmm. If you're not a healthy athlete, nothing else matters. You don't need a coach if you're not healthy. Yeah. We've got mental performance coaches. We've got uh, physiologists. All these individuals help our ballplayers maximize their potential. They yeah. never get noticed either, by the way. That's another thing Lowell tries to go out of his way to recognize whenever we've done speaking engagements or anything. He always wants to recognize the support, the caregivers, all those people kind of behind the scenes. It takes a team. When I was at the University of Illinois, what we would do is after we would win a national championship and they would cut down the net, it was the captain's responsibility of those teams to make sure that everybody in the program who helped got a piece of the net. And so literally they would cut it up into these little snippets that would be about two to three inches long and they would go around and they would give, you know, the strength coach a piece and the, and the AT a piece. They would give our athletic director a piece, our director, uh, the secretary in the front office, the janitor who would go around and keep the building clean. Mm. Every single person who interacted with us during the year will get a piece of that net. That's a great visual to demonstrate just how many people are involved if you think about a net being cut up into that many tiny pieces. I like it. Everybody always gets a piece of the net. And I think it's so important that everybody who contributed get one in. And our ball players really learned that at U of I. And they really understood how many people contributed to the opportunity they would have to win a national championship. And they really took that to heart. And really uh, were very, very thankful. And that was really, mm -hmm. really important. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you have a favorite joke? Do I have a favorite You do? Okay, tell me. Three men walked into a bar, fourth one ducked. Ouch. There's always a moment yep, yep. of <laughs> and But what's funny, if you tell that to kindergartners, kindergartners get it right away. And they laugh. They're busting out and rolling on the ground. I think it's hysterical. Okay, here's my joke. What do you call an alligator in a vest? An investigator. <laughs> That's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test that out. <laughs> Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to share or anything that you promote? Do you do public speaking? After my accident, I did a ton of public speaking on safe driving and driving oh. responsibly. I've been really fortunate to have just learned a lot of lessons over the years. And now what I want to do, I want to find a way to get all of that out. Write a to, book. To ship mm -hmm. all of that. And I guess what I would say is there's a story I tell about, I think, the impact of wheelchair basketball and the impact of Paralympic sport and how it has a potential to change society. So what I know about wheelchair basketball is when people come to see a game for the first time, and a lot of Paralympic sports are like this, they come into the gym and they see the players and they're wheeling around. And I know what they're saying. They're saying things like that person can't walk or that person can't jump or, you know, that person can't go upstairs. Those are the kinds of things they're thinking and even saying. And then they watch a game of wheelchair basketball. 
they're watching the ball players pushing up and down the court and they start saying things like, wow, did you see how fast that player was? Man, did you see that player hit that three? Wow, did you see that player get up that fast? And when they're leaving the gym, those are the things they're talking about. They're talking about how fast the player is and how, how they hit a shot and, and how quickly they got up. And they've gone from talking about things the player can't do to mm. talking about the things the player can do. And I can't help but think that when they get outside that gym, they're walking around in their community and they see a person wheel by in a wheelchair that instead of thinking that person can't go upstairs, that person can't jump. I think what they think is, I wonder if that person plays wheelchair basketball. Mm. I wonder what that person does. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, because of wheelchair basketball, they've begun to change the way they view and value people. And I think that's a great way for us to begin to think about how we should view people in society, to look at a person and to think, I wonder what that person does. I wonder what that person's exceptional Mm -hmm. at. I wonder how that would change how our society is shaped and how we do things. If we looked at people for what they are good at, as opposed to what they can. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably where I leave it, because I think that is one of the coolest things about Paralympic sport yeah. that we come across, is it has the potential to teach us that. Mm-hmm. We just have to see it more. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. I love that. That's a lovely place to end. The power of our mindset, the power of seeing what we can do, what we can't, and the people along the journey. So you've shared with us today the power of the team, the people who've gotten you through, the power of sport to overcome these relationships that have helped you get there and then the enjoyment of the relationships you continue to have. You have an incredible mindset. You continue to teach these lessons. You're a teacher and educator, and we are blessed to have had this opportunity to learn a little bit from you today. Thank you for taking that time and for continuing to help us all see the world in a little bit healthier of a way. As Lowell would say, this conversation with you, Frog, was riveting. (laughs) How many times have you heard that? (laughs) I've never heard that before. That's a new one. That's Are you serious? Oh my goodness. Yeah. You're so fascinating to talk to. I would assume that everyone's punny minds would go there. Hey, this has been a lot of fun. And thank you so much for having me on. I, I've had a great time. And if we can ever have another conversation again, I'd love to help out and have another conversation. Thank you so much. You take care and you have a great night. Yeah, you yep. too. See ya. Bye, Mike. Thank you. Bye. Ah, oh, frog. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. What a great guy. He's had so much experience. I think actually there's an area that we are quite similar in. He talked about having this high desire for risk, Mm -hmm. right? From zero to 100. And he's, if it's about risk, he's all in 100. And I think I'm pretty close to that. Yeah. When he was saying that, I thought, oh, low 100, Julie zero. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Try it. Like how fast can we go? How, what can we try? Bungee jumping, skydiving. Like, yeah. And I'm like, should we wear knee pads and a helmet? So you, you even me out a little bit and maybe I help you take a little bit more risk. Yeah, I like to think so. For Mike though, to have that idea of just take on risk, take on challenge, push through the struggle, not let the obstacle get in the way that has helped him. That mindset has helped him achieve amazing things in his life that he doesn't let these things get in his way. And one of it is just because he's wired for risk, mm-hmm. wired to take on these new tasks. Yeah. I love that, that just in the hospital bed right away, he pretty much just, it seemed like he didn't have any bitterness or resentment towards his injury and just like, okay, well, I'm just going to embrace this new life now. He didn't get stuck in the stages of grief, right? We often talk about the five stages and you have grief and you have denial, right? He said he wasn't really in there. And then that depression, that kind of lowness, we don't really go into that too long. 
the bargaining, really the kind of bargaining with God and if only and all those pieces. And then moving into this acceptance. And it sounds like he really went into acceptance really early and saw the opportunities in his life. What can I do now? Right away talking. Can I do coaching? What can I do? It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's awesome. I was just thinking when you're talking about the stages of grief, do you remember that image that my sister shared a couple years after her infant daughter passed away about the stages of grief and how they say you're going through the stages of grief and it looks like it should be this linear Mm -hmm. thing, but really it's just scribbles everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The stages of grief can just be all over the place. Yeah. It's not linear. It's not one thing at a time. And actually they've done some changes on that. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who created the stages of grief, that was actually in people who had been giving diagnoses that they're going to die. And that's the, the process is the five stages. And then the final stage before you die is the acceptance of your death. It actually isn't meant to apply for all grief where that's ah. kind of been erroneously thought of Oh, I see. that all stages, all, all grief has these five stages and that's not actually, um, doesn't fit the realities. Oh. You must be a psychologist. There we go. <laughs> Just there's good some, job. Thank there's you. some grief and learning, but as, as people who are grieving, right? We don't always get to the acceptance and stay there. And mm-hmm. not everybody in the loss of an ability will have all of these stages. And, and Frog was one of those people. He just had the experience, he accepted it, and he saw the opportunity. And likely there were still moments of grieving throughout his life, as there are in my life with being blind, there are different moments, but that's still a good process. Mm -hmm. And how cool is it that he has found his niche now in coaching wheelchair basketball? Mm -hmm. Because if I was playing wheelchair basketball, I think I would really, really appreciate having a coach that also played wheelchair basketball. I learned a lot about wheelchair basketball today, Lowell. Yeah, we didn't know a lot about. I've watched it in Paralympics before, but definitely this year, Tokyo, we're going to be paying attention more to wheelchair basketball. And it was really neat to see. I had assumed that the nets were lower. You know how strong they must be? It looks like they're hardly putting effort in. Whereas if I were to take a shot at the three-point line, I'd basically squat my butt to the floor and then like leap and shoot at the same time to get enough power. (laughs) That's why you're not an elite basketball player. Hey now. (laughs) (laughs) Practice. Um, It was fun to see as we went through the interview that we actually had quite a few connections. His wife's a speech pathologist that came out. You're a speech pathologist. They had a dog named Toby. We have a dog named Toby. (laughs) That's kind of cool. The interaction of having a disability and having a marriage and going through those struggles. And then even where they were at, down in Urbana, Champaign, Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> we were on the same campus at the same time, most likely, That's when we were crazy. down there, I don't know, 2000, 2000. It was over New two, Year's. Over New Year's. I remember that well, Lowell. <laughs> so the countdown, <laughs> counting down to the New Year, we're in a group five, four, three, two, one. Happy New Year. <laughs> and what does Lowell do? Were you waiting for me to hug you? Yeah, I think we were we were just newly we dating. We were newly dating, yeah. Well, Only a couple no, months. that was New Year's, and we started dating in February. So we'd been dating for like almost a year. Okay, well, right. I don't have you, an excuse then. If you do math, I, I, I don't either. Like I, <laughs> When I was growing up, I sometimes read this ridiculous conservative magazine that told me not to initiate, so I didn't initiate. So somebody else decided to initiate in that moment. <laughs> And Ruth went in for the kill. So Ruth on my right got the hug. The first hug of the new year. <laughs> 2003, I believe. Goes to Ruth. And you got the seconds. Yeah. That but we've got a... many hugs since that yeah. moment. And I've learned to initiate. <laughs> Are we going off track here? <laughs> That's our Urbana Champagne connection. It was a fun conversation. Learned lots. He has a great mindset. 
If you want to check out more from Mike Frogley, you can check him out online. He's on Mindset Go season three in episode one with the name is Tracy. What a great guy. Thank you, Frog. And until next time. That was a very riveting conversation. <laughs> Bada boom. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye. Leading to Tokyo 2021, this podcast will be focusing on the stories of elite athletes. If you or someone you know has overcome obstacles on your quest for world-class competition and you'd like to be on our show, please find us at obstaclesandopportunities.com and reach out. Our podcast social media handles are at obsopspod. That is O-B-S-O-P-S-P-O-D. And our personal handles are at Julie Lowell Can, J-U-L-I-E-L-O-W-E-L-L-C-A-N. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.